Hey everybody, this is Greg, and before we get started with the podcast, I want to give a quick shout out to two of our sponsors. The first is a company that is very close to my heart, Dominar Studios. They're the makers of the Cloud Agent Suite. Their flagship product, Cloud CMA, is used by over 500,000 real estate professionals all across the country, and their customers have published over 15 million Cloud CMA reports. Also check out CloudMLX, their front-end-of-choice solution, which won Inman News' Most Innovative Technology Award and has crossed over 200,000 MLS members under site license. You can find out more at cloudagentsuite.com. Also, I'm excited to announce the Notorious VIP, a premium subscription service from Rob Hahn, also known as the Notorious ROB. Membership gives you subscriber-only content, both written and recorded, that is unavailable anywhere else. The difference between the Notorious ROB blog and the Notorious VIP is that VIP focuses on research and analysis, while the ROB blog focuses on commentary and op-ed. Notorious VIP is for those in organized real estate that want to go a few layers deeper. Please visit Notorious-ROB.com to find out more. I'll put a link to both sponsors in the show notes. Also, if any of our listeners are interested in sponsoring the Industry Relations Podcast, please drop me a line at gregrobertson at gmail.com. Hey, thanks for listening. And now, on with the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Industry Relations with Rob and Greg. This is your co-host, Rob Hahn, the notorious ROB. I almost want to say in the flesh, but obviously that's just not the case because, you know, it's a podcast and we are in COVID times. And with me is the special uh, co-host, Greg Robertson. Are you there, Greg? Hello, Rob. <laughs> I would like to speak to Greg, not Greg's wife. Uh, is that possible? <laughs> uh, I got to mix it up, bro. I you do. I do, you do. Yeah. Uh, well, it's wonderful to hear your voice, my friend. You too, man. And uh, today we actually have a very exciting special guest with us. We have Errol Samuelson on with us. He's the Chief Industry Development Officer of Zillow. Errol, are you around? Hey, guys. How are you? Hey, hey Errol. How are you doing? This might Good. be our biggest Good. skit ever. This Rob, might be our biggest Errol. skit ever. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Don't oversell it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Errol, I mean, I'm just trying to think about I was Before this, I was thinking, how long have we known each other? It's got to be mid, late 90s. Yeah, I would say mid '90s. I I got into real estate accidentally, probably around '91 or '92. I was working doing yeah. uh, research and development for the, the one of the Canadian phone companies. We built uh, an MLS app, and that was sort of how I I got my introduction. So I think I would have met you at a trade show, maybe '94, '95. Yeah, and the way I remember it is that we were doing we had a, a program that was an MLS access program called Lightning. Lightning, and yeah. I was showing that to. Uh, up in Seattle area to um, Cole Banker Bain. And he says, you know, this is really interesting. You should be really talking to these other guys that are doing some interesting stuff in the MLS space. And that's when I first met Kurt Beardsley, who's been your kind of longtime uh, cohort. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was with Kevin, uh, another his partner called Kevin, and they were making, uh, they were working on some map stuff and everything, but they ended up making uh, basically the first web-based MLS system yeah, True North. Um, it was called. True North. True North Technologies, right? Yeah, and uh, and that basically is what everybody is kind of like using now is something that Kurt and Kevin created back then. And you were working, I guess that's when you came into the scene for me because you acquired that company uh, working for I think it was General No GTE, right? Yeah, we so so we got acquired. 
our little startup got acquired by GTE. And then I ran into Kurt and Kevin and we were, you know, we thought this was amazing software because our, our, mm-hmm. our MLS software was Windows based, but they had built this web based system. And so we acquired that business, I'm going to say probably 1997. Uh, right. At the time, it was it was nuts because they they'd rented this old house near a uh, lake. Oh, Washington. I love that in Kirkland. Yeah, in Kirkland. Yeah, and uh, you know they had they had this uh, the server room was basically a bunch of Dell PCs sitting like in the bathroom, and they had a, the office dog, and they would be throwing the tennis ball to the dog, and one day the, the tennis ball bounced, hit the power switch, and they took down the entire Alaska MLS. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen this house, Rob. It was like it was like this old time house, and like Kurt had his big old desk right next to the fireplace. And I remember going there and I was so fucking, so jealous. I was just so jealous of these guys. Yeah. And uh, they had the, you know, it was Seattle. So you could smell the fresh ground coffee that they had going on in the house, right? This is before it became a thing. Yeah. And um, just really, um, and I, I remember going back here to Orange County and talking to Dan. I'm like, dude, these guys have got it going on. They get their rent of this house. Everybody's like, you know, dogs around, you know, we were in some, corporate commercial building with you know yeah crappy lighting and stuff but um yeah it's uh it's been a long time man Man, you guys are making me jealous because like y'all were doing cool interesting stuff and i was sitting in law school reading like (laughs) lengthy ass (laughs) legal cases but uh hey so yeah i think you know this is so cool for both of us because obviously we both known you for years and years, but you know what we wanted to talk about. It's it's almost like every episode that Greg and I have done in the last month or two is all about COVID and the impact and you know what's the future hold. And obviously, because you've been around for such a long time and you've in such senior roles, like you've seen things come and go. Like you've been through it all, right? I mean, you you were there when the first recession hit. You were kind of at the birth of sort of you know technology, online real estate. Uh, so we just felt like you're the perfect guy to kind of talk to. What might the uh, future of real estate look like you know, as we uh, come out of this thing? So, you know what? I mean, I know Dot Loop, uh, you know, wrote one of these, uh, a really great post actually about predictions about the post-pandemic future. But I'll just come straight up ask you, like, give me your top three predictions, you know, of what you think the post-pandemic future of real estate looks like. Okay. I think there's going to be some really interesting implications for commercial real estate. You know, I think there's going to be, unfortunately, a lot of retail businesses aren't going to make it. So I think you're going to see a glut of retail space. And I think we're probably, we're already overbuilt in retail anyway. Uh, And then I guess the question is what happens with office space? So, you know, I think about our company and we're trying to put together plans, you know, for slowly turning the dial and reopening the offices, but we need a whole new configuration. So you need social distancing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and quite frankly, we used to have this policy where we were pretty strict. If you wanted to come work for us, you needed to work out of one of our offices. There were a few exceptions, but generally speaking, we wanted people in the office. We thought it led to more creativity and more collaboration. Now we've been forced to work from home for, you know, since the beginning of March. And we've discovered that it works just fine. And so we're, we're going to change our policies where we're going to be much more relaxed about having people, you know, work where they feel comfortable, work where they're most productive. Obviously, some jobs have to be in the office, but I think we're taking a different point of view on that. And so the question I think in in office space is, on the one hand, with social distancing, you're going to need more space. But on the other hand, if a big part of your workforce isn't coming in, you know, then maybe you don't need more space. So we talk post-pandemic, where you can go back to regular densities, but now you have a bunch of your workforce not coming in, are we going to see a lot more office space unoccupied. There was an article last weekend 
in the New York Times about how three of the biggest banks, you know, with 20,000 employees in New York were, were rethinking about whether people needed to come to work post-pandemic. And what the interesting take on that one was sort of the knock-on effect, which is what happens to the, the restaurants and the bars and all the businesses that are basically driven you know, by the fact you've got this this massive workforce that converges on Manhattan every day. So I think I think the whole the way we think about commercial real estate is going to change. So I think that's one. I think maybe consumer. Well, we're seeing some data that suggests okay. consumer preferences for what kind of homes they wish to live in is going to change. I think after being sequestered in your house for you know eight weeks or twelve weeks. People have discovered what they do and don't like about their house. So I think I think consumer preferences for housing may change, you know. And then I think, hopefully, uh, maybe I'm being naive and optimistic, but hopefully the way we transact real estate is going to change. Just like, you know, we decided, hey, we don't necessarily need everybody to come work in the office. You know, can we finally get rid of some of the antiquated, you know, processes that we have in real estate, whether it's you know wet signatures or whether it's you know, the fact you need an in-person notary. In some states, a brokerage actually has to have a physical office location. You know, is that really necessary? So there's a bunch of things, I think, in how we conduct real estate that may change if we can sort of leverage the learnings of the current moment and say, now's a great time, finally, to streamline the transaction. So I, I actually kind of want to take that in reverse order <laughs> because that's, I mean, although like, you know, I think the commercial discussion is super interesting and I came out of commercial, you know, given our audience, you know, I feel like they're going to want to know most about kind of how you see the, the transaction itself changing, right? So I, I guess I'll start off by kind of mentioning this amazing post that Dot .loop put together. Their take is that prediction, and I'm using Dot .loop because obviously Dot .loop, you guys, you know, it's basically the same company. So I have to think that there's some some overlap in their beliefs there. Their thing is that real estate transactions will go 100% digital. Do you kind of see that happening? It would go 100% digital? I hope so. There's okay. a lot of inertia in our, in our industry, but the right thing to do would be to go 100% digital. If there's too much today, even, even appraisals. You know, I think what we've seen is, is the appraisal standards have been relaxed a little bit in terms of the need to have someone... You know, physically go inside a house right now, but again, I think we're going to find that that you can actually do appraisals potentially without you know a human being going into the house, or at least in most most cases that that would be mm -hmm. true. So why mm -hmm. not why not eliminate that expense and eliminate that friction? You know, one of the things that we're seeing is out of necessity a huge uptick, you know, five hundred percent increase in three D walkthroughs for homes, and correspondingly, those are the homes that are getting the most views. Yeah. But interestingly, when we talk to agents, what they're saying is, you know, consumers are using these digital tools to tour a bunch of homes and then narrow down their choice. So instead of asking to, you know, spend Saturday afternoon and see five homes, what they're saying is, I think I found the one I like. Let me just go look at that one mm -hmm. uh, and confirm that it's as great as I think it is. So, I mean, even even the home search process, I think, could be streamlined. We, we saw a huge jump in traffic. We're now up 40%. Versus last year, which was sort of normal times, forty percent on on views of of for sale homes, which would suggest to me, a yeah, there's still strong interest in moving, but b I think people are doing a lot more filtering, and so hopefully that also improves the process for agents for brokers. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's a, what they've been saying. All the trends that have been happening in, because of this are just getting accelerated. 
right? And right. and the things that you've talked about where I mean Zillow itself helped narrow down people going to look at homes, you know, in real life, right? Sure. Uh, when you guys, I remember reading a stat that you when you first introduced the with the video walkthroughs, you you were saying something like listings with the video walkthroughs or you know virtual tours get more you know get more traffic. So this is just everything that has been a trend so far has now just been accelerated like into light speed. I mean, here's actual data from from March. The homes that had the the 3D walkthroughs had essentially twice the number of visits, 123% more saves. So, you know, consumers love it. Wow. What you would hope is post-pandemic, every single home is going to have one of those walkthroughs. Every home is going to have a floor plan, you know, and make that that filtering experience so much easier. Wow. So, right. So, but I want to step back a second. You said that um, you felt that like appraisals could be done virtually. I mean, is that realistic though? Honestly, and I'll, I'll just ask that to both you guys. Well, it's a really a bank function, right, um, Errol? I think mostly those things are driven because the bank has to like show Wall Street or somebody that they've done some diligence on this. Yeah. There has to be some human involved for these things to be processed. I think it's more driven by the financial. It, it is. You're totally right. It, it's Freddie and Fannie, right? You know, basically, you, you do whatever the bank requires you to do to get the mortgage. I guess the question is. You know, are the models getting good enough? You don't need 100% precision, right, on an appraisal. Mm-hmm. You need to be close, particularly if you have a reasonable down payment. And so the question is, can tech get us close enough? I think it probably can. Wow. Wait, so because, you know, one of the things about the appraisal side is, you know, they've been dealing with a trend over, I don't know, 10, 20 years that there just aren't a whole lot of new appraisers coming to the industry. Do you know what I mean? Because it's, it's a long process. It's... You know, it's really difficult. And a lot of appraisers are saying, you know, they're making whatever, a couple hundred bucks for hours and hours of work. They'd rather go to something else. Mm-hmm. So this might actually be kind of a solution, right? Mm-hmm. Where maybe you have an experienced appraiser, you know, doing it digitally over a much wider geographic area. You know what I mean? Like, is there some reason why somebody in, I don't know, Southern California, who's a licensed appraiser in, in all of California, couldn't do an appraisal virtually then? you know, say San Francisco, right? I mean, I, I can't think of a reason why they couldn't if we have things advanced to that point. Yeah, I mean, if, if the banks, if I mean, again, it's going to be driven by the financial community, right? I mean, if that's, right. it's not anything we can do. It's going to be people that have money are going to say that's cool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know what that's, how that's going to play. Well, I think one of the things that may be interesting is if you look at the the sort of the current vintage of mortgages that are getting issued, during the COVID crisis, when you're doing non-traditional appraisals, take a look at the default rate on that cohort of mortgages. And if you find that the default rate is about the same, if you find that you know the banks aren't getting burned because they use a different appraisal process, mm-hmm. that would suggest to you that maybe we've gotten to the point where you know we can try something that is more streamlined. Yeah, but this this gives us a perfect petri dish to test it. Right, right. And as long as the policymakers and the banks and whoever else, you know, go along with it, we we could actually see something like that happen. So before we leave this off, because I do want to ask you about the consumer preference, given this virtualization, Errol, like what's your prediction for what happens to the industry as a whole, like brokers and agents? Like how do you see this affecting them? Good question. My feeling is that what are the high value functions that are performed, you know, by an agent? A lot of times the administrative work you know, the wet signatures on a document. Yeah, yeah. It's not the high value work. So I think if we could 
streamline that and agents focus on what they're really good at, which is sort of the negotiation, the the psychological analysis of your needs, you know, helping you, you know, through the decision making process, the advice, that's the high value work. And that isn't replaced by a machine. And so I think potentially, you know, maybe you have agents doing more transactions, right, per agent, uh, mm-hmm. it can be more efficient. I think it also suggests that that the the brokerages and the agents you know, who are going to adopt this technology are not going to be part-time agents, right? You need to have scale. So maybe maybe that accelerates the trend we've already saw, already seen, which is sort of a move towards the full-time professional agent versus the agent who maybe does a handful of transactions a year. You know, potentially, we'll see. Cool. Greg, anything on the uh, the transaction itself? Because I, I do want to kind of dig into the consumer stuff. Well, I just, I mean, to me, you're talking about like membership, right? I mean, Zillow's always gotten a rap of like, oh, they're going to replace agents and all these other kind of quote unquote disruptors or anything. But I mean, ever since Zillow launched or Open Door launched or anybody of these launched, all NAR membership has done is just increase, you know, <laughs> by a lot, right? So, and it, it goes counterintuitive to, it's even going counterintuitive to what has been traditionally. We've talked about this on the podcast before where, NAR membership would go up during kind of when when unemployment would go up, right? Mm-hmm. But with historically low unemployment numbers before COVID, of course, they've gone up as well. So it's it's going to be interesting post COVID to see what happens, right? To yeah. see what the membership levels reach down to. I mean, you could make an argument, you know, that I was listening to another um, interview that Brian Barrera was doing with um, a couple of agents, and you know, one of the predictions have been that you know. Is an agent's SOI less important now that they can basically monetize or systematize leads via sites like Zillow and such, right? And, you know, if that's the case, I mean, that could even be a better case for maybe some, you know, people that wouldn't be interested in real estate to to get into it, but they have good business practices or, you know, uh, processes, right? So there's a lot of different data points to look at here to to figure out what's the you know, what, what's actually going to happen. But I mean, it's, I think it's a free for all as far as guessing what's going to happen. Yeah. We, we've, we've always had the point of view that agents are essential, but we also have the point of view that you want to have the very best agents. Right. And so right. our strategy, even with our premier agent product has never been to sign up, you know, a million agents, right. What we look for are the agents who are great at, you know, working with consumers, they're super responsive. And we've tried to focus on helping those agents who are already great, uh, help them grow their business. But that's very different than than sort of the alternative philosophy, which is you don't need agents at all. And what and the long term goal is to have tech somehow replace the functions performed by an agent. We've never thought that was the case. Yeah, but, you know. Yeah, as a, as I've pointed out in a bunch of posts, it's like it's not Zillow trying to put you out of business. It's other agents using Zillow trying to put you out of business. <laughs> you know, that's the nature of competition. You know, <laughs> so let's move to the consumer because uh, you mentioned the consumer preferences will change. What do you mean by that? So we've, we've been doing a bunch of consumer research over the last month to, you know, see if consumer preferences have been changing. Yeah. And so um, some of the, the changes or some of the data, I think, not surprising. Some of the data actually quite surprising. So, okay. all right. So let's see. One of the things that's interesting is you have a lot more people obviously working from home now. So before the crisis, only 7% of Americans were working from home. And mm-hmm. now many, you know, maybe the majority of us are. And so we asked people who are currently working from home post-crisis, would you like to continue working from home? 75% said yes. 
higher than I would have thought. Especially, wow. Yeah. Especially given what we've heard about the, you know, juggling, you know, yeah. and all the things. So pretty high. Then the second question was, okay, of those 75%, if you were allowed to work from home, would you consider moving? Two thirds said yes. Right. So wow. that, that's pretty interesting. If I'm not tethered to the, the physical location of my business and I can work from home, would I move? So I think that could lead to, you know, a lot of transaction activity yeah. if all of a sudden people get that freedom. Um, yeah. now what we, but, then, but then there's a sort of the, the counterpoint, which I thought was interesting, is we asked people who were living either in rural, you know, suburban or urban environments, you know, if you were going to move after you sell your house, what kind of new environment would you move to? And the thing that surprised me is that people who live in an urban setting said that they would like to, the majority of them said they would like to continue living in an urban setting or even a more dense setting. So it was about 53%. So I, I would not have predicted that because you keep hearing these anecdotal stories about people you know, fleeing the cities. Yeah. But, but the flip side is people who live in the suburbs and live in rural areas are pretty happy living in the suburbs and rural areas. So it seems like the pandemic hasn't changed preference for location. So, so maybe what that means, if you try and put those two data points together, maybe what it means is I don't live in New York City. Maybe I moved to, I don't know, Columbus. But I st- if, I, if I like the urban environment, I still want to be in the urban environment in Columbus. Maybe that's what that means. Um, okay. You know, the other thing which is less surprising to me is we ask people, okay, do you want more space in your home? The answer was like across the board, Yes. And we broke it out by how much square feet you currently have. You know, do you have 500 to 750? Do you have 2,000 to 2,500? Mm-hmm. And pretty much across the board, you know, until you get to 5,000 square feet, generally speaking, people are saying, I'd like to have, you know, more space or the same, you know, sort of north of 40% people saying, I'd like to have more space. Same thing, people saying, I'd like to have more outdoor space, private outdoor space. Uh, people saying, I'd also, you know, can't have that. I'd be happy to have more shared outdoor space, but but generally more space, right? And I think part of that is because basically forty percent of homes don't have a spare room for a home office. You know, and so when we were looking at the data, okay, well then where mm-hmm. are you working, right? Thirty one percent said right now I'm working in the living or family room. You know, not yeah. super, not super. Yeah. You know, ten percent in the kitchen, three percent in the attic. <laughs> 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 See ya, honey. I'm I'm just going to go up to the attic and work. You know, yeah. hold on the stairs from from the yeah. ceiling, right? Right. Yeah. You know, and so um, <laughs> you hear that creepy noise in the attic. Well, that's just that. Um, <laughs> you know. And so clearly, people are looking. I think for for more space, they're going to work from home, and you know, space with a door. So I think that's not super surprising. So does this mean like that whole tiny homes trend is dead now? Is that dead as doornails? <laughs> Well, that was more of a lifestyle kind of choice. Those guys are not, you know, um, that's a whole different demographic, I think. Um, well, that's what I'm wondering because I, I think what underlay it was you had these younger people, right, who wanted to live in urban environments but couldn't afford it. So they went with like these tiny homes, you know, so it's a little bit better than living in an apartment, right? Like is that is yeah. that trend dead or is that trend alive, I guess? Because you're right, there's a conflicting message. Like you want more space – uh, you want more outdoor space. You want all of this. But and those guys were already moving. committed to living mobily or living on the road or working. You know, they, they were already committed there. It's not they decided before all this. I want a smaller space, even though I have a job. It's not like okay, I I have a job. I have a home. 
And now that I'm working at home, I've got to decide something. And they made that decision before all this, right? So I don't think I don't think that changes those guys. I feel that that was a pretty niche kind of a thing. You know, I, I yeah. think I think in general, people are going to want more square footage, and they're going to want yeah. you know office dedicated office space. There's a guy that that I work with, and he happened to have an airstream in his front driveway, and so he would log into all of our you know Zoom calls from the airstream, and that worked just great until about three weeks ago because he lives in Phoenix. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's an oven resemble an oven, you know. Let me throw a couple other data points out, Rob. Because I was on a panel yesterday for uh, Council of Multiple Listing Services. Um, it was a Bring It to the Table event, mm-hmm. and we were talking about like data now and data, data then and data now, and like what other things consumers will be looking for. And some of the things we were talking about was like you know, you know how important the big hey drive times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, who, you know, yeah. Seems like that data is going to be less important now when, when yeah. your drive time is getting up and going downstairs, right? Internet access speeds. How, you know, what service provider do you have there and what are the speeds? Yeah. What about cell phone coverage? You got two bars or four bars, right? Yeah. Things like open floor plans. I mean, that sounds yikes at the office. Maybe it's yikes at homes now. Yeah. Um, and then other things like uh, access to, I saw a realtor actually advertise this. That the neighborhood was had access to Amazon Prime now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that you know that's that service with Amazon where you can get things within like hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, I think, all those things there are other data points that consumers. I hate to say this, Errol, but we might be having to add more fields in the MLS <laughs> to manage, right? But I mean, yeah. or or floor plans. I mean, I, I can't tell you now. Especially like living in my house the way I have been in the past 30 days, 60 days, is like I have a semblance of like what I'd like different. But when I go to the sites and I don't see floor plans, it's still even with the 3D and everything else, it's hard to visualize for me. Oh, okay, that's where that's at, right? I wish, you know, data like that was more available. So I think there's a lot of things going forward we're going to be looking, the consumers are going to be looking for. I've always wondered why there aren't more floor plans. You know, where I live in, in Vancouver, the vast majority of listings have a floor plan, and I find it, mm. you know, essential. Any yeah. idea why floor plans have never seemed to have caught on as much? Yeah, I have no. I mean, you know, the, the the realtors that do very well, like you know, we have a realtor here in my neighborhood who who was one of the original owners of the houses when they were built. You know, back like you know seventy one or whatever. Yeah, and he kept all the floor plan brochures from buying the house, so he scanned those. Right. And you know, whatever mo- it's the La Cuesta model or the Riviera model. Right. So he has all those from the builder, but those things have never really made it their way to the MLS. And there are some, there are some like, you know, regional companies that you can kind of get that information from, but they're all disparate and all over the place. But, um, no, I mean, it just never caught on here for some reason. I think it's twofold. Like one is the, the culture of, you know, house buying before COVID was, you know, it's it's actually kind of fun to go, you know, walk through somebody else's house, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea is, hey, honey, let's go spend Saturday. But I'm sure that's the case in Canada I think that's as well. A big part of it. Yeah, right but now? I mean, that's I mean, I'm sure they looked at homes in Canada as well. That didn't like change their behavior of getting floor plans. It sounds like. But I think it's like Vancouver. I don't think it's a Canada thing. I think it's an urban thing because New York City, like apartments, all have floor plans. Vancouver isn't urban. <laughs> no, I'm saying Vancouver is urban. What I'm saying is it's it's a Vancouver, Toronto, New York, San Francisco, as opposed to Canada versus U.S. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, maybe it. I mean, that could be it. But you know. 
Yeah, the consumer preference thing is is fascinating that that there is that dichotomy. Out of curiosity, like in the data, you mentioned like 50 some odd percent of urban residents wanted to stay urban. Is that right? Yeah. Do you know what that percentage might have been before COVID? In other words, the other way you could see it is yeah. 48% of urban residents said they want out of the urban environment. Like, was that percentage 10% before COVID? Was it the same? Do you know what I mean? Would you know? Yeah, I don't know offhand, but you're right. That could It could be people who lived in New York, you know, 75% said I would never leave the city. And now, you yeah. know, down to 50, right? It's a good question. Yeah. Good question. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, I, I talked to some friends of mine who are New York City residents, and I got to tell you, I don't think those guys are staying in New York. You know, because one of the things that gets to the point you made about commercial real estate, one of the major societal impacts that could come out of this, and I'm not, I'm only saying could right now, is that the definition of urban and definition of city might completely change. Because to your point, like, what is a city if there are no restaurants? Do you know what I'm saying? Or, or what if, what if all the small sort of boutique restaurants right. go out of business, and now it's this dystopian future where all you have is all of the. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's like, like you're living in Manhattan right. and it's it's all Olive Garden and yeah. Red Lobster and McDonald's. Like, is that still a city? Do you know what I mean? Like, you're right. You know, what, what the appeal of cities, the density is great because you can walk and you've got good public transportation, which post COVID I think is still appealing. But you're right. If all of the other things that make a city special are gone, then what's the point? Right. I, I tend to agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, right. but I mean, you know, I've been reading a lot about like, you know, since a lot of the tech companies in the valley have been saying that she can work from home now, there'll be this mass exodus of people, well, hell, I can make $200,000 and live in Boise now, right? But, you know, besides restaurants and everything else, I mean, that's where the action is, right? That's where the CEOs and and the people that kind of, you know, are 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 kind of making things happen are located. So being outside of that, I don't I don't see that being as big a deal as people think it is. I think people still want to be, you know, not the restaurants and everything else, but they want to be where the action is. And I think that's still going to be the case for cities like San Francisco and, and, and the Valley, for sure. But will it though? Because will will those because I know what you're saying, you know, Nassim Taleb famously talked about living in cities because you know, you just have this random chance of like running into somebody, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden that guy turns out to be the CEO of some company or some, you know, hedge fund manager and all these opportunities open up. What I'm wondering is, are those spontaneous in-person physical gatherings still going to happen? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I mean, to me, again, I think you got to look at this as like pre-vaccine and post-vaccine, right? I'm so much more on the on the thing where People are just going to go back to the way they behaved before all this. I think mm. all this talk about spacing in offices and and all that stuff is like, you know, it's just going to go. We'll do some sort of like you know theater at first to to comply to these things, but that stuff is going to go quickly out the door once once they either have a treatment or once they have a vaccine to this. Right? I mean, I, I don't. I don't think these things are going to be this long-term thing. Now, I do think, though, that what is long-term is this work-from-home thing, right? So I think that's definitely – that that's been pushed forward ahead. But as far as all the other stuff, I think that – I think you got to look at a pre-vaccine or pre-treatment and post-vaccine or post-treatment. And I think as mm. soon as people become more comfortable, it's just going to go back to their old ways for sure. So be- before I argue with Greg, Errol, what do you think? Do you think it's a pre-vaccine, <laughs> post-vaccine? 
I tend to agree. <laughs> I think there's a reason people like living in high density neighborhoods. I think the office configurations go back pretty much to what they were with the one wild card being work from home. And if you have a significant percentage of the population working from home and some meaningful percentage of those people moving to Boise because actually they love the outdoors and they love the lifestyle in Boise. No, that's fine. I'm not saying, I think the work from home thing is going to cause its own things. Yeah. I think the shrinking of office space being one of them, but it's not like we got to configure offices from now going forward where people are eight feet away from each other. No, I mean, that, no. that may be for the, a certain amount of time. Probably let's say um, the next year or two years, right? I mean, it depends how long it takes to get a vaccine tested, manufactured. Not even a vaccine. I think it, once they come up and say, we have a treatment for this, like you take your Z-Pack and you're okay, that's going to be enough for people to kind of have confidence. Potentially. Maybe. Except that you guys are leaving something out then, right? Which is, sure, vaccine or ZPAC will deal with this pandemic, right? But unless we're going to live in a totally different world where international travel doesn't exist, where we don't have imports, do you know what I mean? Unless we have we move to more, you know, much less globalized society, I mean, pandemics are going to like come, like some new pandemic, some new monkey disease is going to come hit us at some point, right? Well, I mean, look at look at the last, what is it, 10 years. You had H1N1, yeah. you had SARS, yeah. you had SARS, now you got COVID-19. I mean, yeah. yes, there is that. So, so it's, it's, the we'll it, but it's the severity, right? I mean, you know, each one has its own type of severity. You, you can't assume that the next one's going to be as-, as No, I you know. know. Yeah. I know. But what I'm talking about is the psychology. In other words, we now have the entire world particularly aware of things like infection and disease, right? So we have social distancing. We've got all this cleaning and wiping and all this stuff. And even though now there's like evidence coming out that, you know, this this virus can't survive on surfaces that well. And CDC's come out and said, You're, you don't have to be afraid of that. So I know it's a real fast changing world, but the one fundamental psychological change we have is all of a sudden people are super aware of disease and infection. And it's like, fine, we'll deal with this one. But we never know when the next one's coming. So what I'm trying to imagine is, I get it, like the the work at home and you know all of that. I'm trying to imagine people like Errol, people like Rich, people like Lloyd, people you know, people like CEO of Starbucks, you know, going out and just you know doing the physical networking events that they might have done before COVID. I don't know if that spontaneous kind of mixing that that was what was one of the great things about cities will continue or because, hey, we might have a cure for COVID, but you know what? I don't want to be around another 3,000 people if some latest monkey virus from South America lands here, right? That's the part I'm wondering about. I mean, you can't live in – I mean, there's so many things that could happen to people. I mean, you just can't live in fear. Nobody's Except we're living in fear, Greg. <laughs> That's right, my mean, point. Is, we're doing that. I think, this I is, think the, what, what it depends on is how long – this pandemic continues with sure. a second wave and without a treatment and so on. So if, if we if we're in this mode that we're in now, which is pretty pretty ugly, for let's say two more years or or you know, heaven forbid, three more years, then I think that has a long term psychological impact. I think it's like you remember your grandparents who lived through the depression yeah. and they were, they were always saving things. It was completely unnecessary, but they were just super careful because mm-hmm. they through this period when when they really, you know, lacked. I think some of those things can be have a long-term sort of permanent impact on your brain. If this is shorter term, people have this amazing ability to sort of forget forget the past. Right, right. 
On that point, though, Errol, I, your consumer research, to jump back to it, and I, I hate to bring this, but I, I have to because, let's face it, this pandemic has become super politicized. Like, was there any difference in the response rate between, let's just broadly call it red states and blue states? We didn't look at that, or at least I don't have the data. I, I obviously, we could probably look at it that way. But I, I think the bigger issue, and there was an article this week in the Atlantic magazine on this, is that different geographies have experienced the pandemic in different ways. So, right. so if you were living in Seattle or New York, wow, that was a really, really different experience than if you were living, say, I don't know, somewhere that was less impacted, maybe Oklahoma City or you know, yeah, right, yeah. middle of New Mexico. And so it has not been a u- uniform experience across the country. And so you actually have a bunch of different pandemic experiences depending on you know, where you live. And I think that's the real question. And I think that's, that's what makes this article in the Atlantic was saying, that's what is going to make it hard to have sort of a unified response because everyone's reality was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you read like uh, Glenn Kelman did those three posts about kind of a, a day by day or month by month, I think it was week by week even, analysis of like what they did at Redfin as part yeah. of this thing. And you could tell that their experience in Seattle, his, ex, you know, living there and knowing what was going on at the at the first beginning of this really skewed his way he looked at things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that 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 might not have been the case for other brokerages around the country they could look at like what he did like that's crazy right as far as the 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 actions that he took but it is it is skewed tremendously by location and and uh and severity for sure all right so let me let me shift out of this completely and go towards a little bit more optimistic thing so errol i mean given that you have a front row seat in kind of the intersection of real estate and technology and given that we talked about the post-pandemic world is going to be much more tech savvy or whatnot, is there any sort of like, I, I don't know what to call it, like advanced bleeding edge sci-fi type technology that you think could come down the pike that will completely, you know, change the world, I guess, if you will, whether that's, you know, something like AI or big, you know, do you know what I mean? Like something coming down the pike that none of us are even thinking about right now. It's a great question. I, I think... Generally speaking, when you look at technology, you know, the, the so-called revolutionary tech that, that no one saw coming had been coming for a long time. You know, mobile, there was a bunch of work being done on smartphones. I mean, Microsoft had one out in 2002 that was actually pretty clever. You know, it, it required the iPhone to, that was sort of the moment where people said, oh my gosh, you know, smartphone. And I think the same was true of anything, graphical user interfaces, uh, AI, you know. If you look at what is being worked on today, you can pretty much figure out what is going to be the big thing in five years. So I don't think we're going to be blind. I think the one that maybe I didn't see coming was social, social media. But I think the rest of it was pretty predictable. It was not a question of, I mean, Netflix was entirely predictable. You know, you knew that when the internet got fast enough, right, and then when video compression algorithms got good enough, that somebody was going to create a streaming service. You, you could have made that prediction in 2000. Uh, oh, was, I, I did. Don't don't remind me. This is a very painful chapter of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was that one was obvious. Facebook, Twitter weren't obvious to me, but the rest of them, I think you could predict. So I, I think the stuff that's going to change real estate um, is the stuff that we already see people working on right now. AI and machine learning, absolutely, yeah. definitely, no question. Right? Um, what about I, blockchain. Christ. You know, I'm, I, you and I disagree on on the impact of blockchain. I personally probably regret saying this in five years, but I personally <laughs> blockchain having a huge impact on real estate. I know people talk about, you know, using it to replace the, the title and, you know, registering title and, and deeds and so on, but I don't see it. I do think what's interesting, the, the consumer 
changes are important. The consumer desire for you know ease and simplicity and certainty. One of the things we'd ask people in the surveys we were doing last couple of weeks was whether they would be more likely to use an iBuyer. And two thirds said, you know, either moderately or, or, you know, significantly more. Yeah. Two thirds would say slightly moderately or a lot more likely to sell their home to an iBuyer. The ability to have not just the certainty, but also, you know, less human interaction. So I think, I think the consumer trends need to be focused on. And I think some of the new tech where we've seen massive advances like machine learning in the last five years, I think will have an impact. So because you brought up iBuyer and, you know, feel free to just not answer this, but I, I want to try and see what is your definition of an iBuyer? And, and you know what? I'll be selfish about this because I've been fighting about this for the last two, three years, ever since this thing became a thing. I've always distinguished between iBuyers, you know, that like Opendoor and Zillow who are offering market price versus investors and flippers who are not. What is your definition of an iBuyer? Well, yes. So people constantly use timing. I think there's a timing of like when when they can pay, right? Where it's it's also an issue. I mean, I think I think the notion of you're actually selling your home to the entity. It's not some sort of strange deal where you know we'll front you the down payment, but then we we need to sell your house or we'll pay you ninety percent of the value and we'll share the upside. To me, I don't think that falls into the i buying bucket. And maybe I'm maybe my definition is a little more narrow. But I think the entity needs to buy your home. They need to pay a fair price. And you need to basically eliminate a lot of the uncertainty and friction. To me, if you have those ingredients, you're an iBuyer. Uh, but certainly not flipping. Flipping's been around forever. And that's basically looking for a home that is probably a little run down. Maybe you can you can knock the price down, do some quick renos. That's not iBuying. iBuying is actually looking for homes that are in good shape, right? You're, you're actually a market maker. You're trying to provide liquidity. And, and Rob, if I could go back to kind of what you were asking Errol before about the future of stuff, yeah, right? And yeah. he mentioned, you know, Netflix and, and then social media as being um, one that maybe caught us a little bit, the power of it caught us by surprise. I would throw in there going forward that, you know, now Zoom is a social network. Sure. Yeah. You know, and, and this fact of like us getting together, I mean, I've been on a lot, a lot of like virtual lobby bar sessions with some friends. Um, Errol, I've seen you in a couple of those, those parties. <laughs> and that type of social interaction you just didn't do before, right? You know, you, yeah. you called people up, but having that video component and multiple faces on your screen. And what that's doing, I think, is breaking down barriers of like you're you're getting more connections with people online by and, and multiple groups of people by seeing them on the screen, by participating in those kind of social things than you were before. And I think that kind of comfortableness that Zoom is giving you is going to translate into more comfortableness with other things like viewing a house virtually. You know, right now, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, doing virtual showings and and virtual open houses and those kind of things. Um, we just released something called Cloud CMA Live, where, you know, you can do a virtual listing presentation. But in the past, people would say, oh, you know, well, it's they're signing a contract or they're making this or decision or that. I mean, I don't think I could ever do that. But we've been doing some surveys and like, Agents really need this tool now. They need something that they, and they're feel more comfortable doing it because they've been spending time online and, and getting comfortable with that situation, that, that experience of doing something Zoom. So I think, I think Zoom is really underestimated as far as what it's really doing to our culture. 
and how comfortable it is making us be online than we were in the past. I, I think you're right. Like, so we've got family, you know, in different provinces, different cities, and we've been doing some of these Zoom calls. We'll get together. We could have done that pre-COVID. I'm mm-hmm. not sure we did, but I love it. And, you know, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll keep doing that. And I, I think there is a certain informality about it. And I think there is a way for people to network that they maybe wouldn't network traditionally. So I think, I think you're right. It's driving some changes in the way we communicate. Yeah. And, you know, like you're, you're right. I think the next big sort of future technology, if you will, to me is, is are those goggle things, you know, like Samsung's been advertising them for a while. I remember around the holidays uh, last year, everyone's doing this, you know, like you put on this 3d goggles thing. Mm, uh, I, I, I totally disagree. <laughs> what's that? I totally disagree with you, but keep going. Okay. Well, here's why, because I think you're right. Like right now, Zoom and sort of online video and these these things have existed for a long time. What people are working on is that next level of virtual reality, right? Where it's that almost 3D immersion type technology. We're not there yet. You know, we're not we're nowhere close. And it's just being used for gaming and porn. But the way I look at it, gaming and porn is what tends to drive and predict the future of just general consumer technology anyway, right? Like streaming video, Netflix, long before it became anything for the mainstream, like that was the w- direction that adult was going. Uh, because, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's VHS and beta tapes all the way to the internet, I mean, that's, sex is a real powerful driver of human human behavior. And that's that's what we've been seeing. I promise, I mean, it's, it's for research. It's not for, you know, uh, but it's, so I, I actually think that 3D virtual reality stuff that's being developed in that world is likely what's coming next. Right. I think it's more augmented than virtual. Yep. Yeah. I'm with you, Greg. Yeah. The, the problem with the, with the headsets is you have to put the headset on, right? And yeah. and and you, you you're kind of dangerous, right? You see all these you know videos <laughs> on YouTube of people falling off their chair and whatnot. I think the technology that's going to win is a technology that you can use in everyday life, and it's not super intrusive, and you don't have to put something on or take something off. I think augmented reality has tremendous potential. And I think that's where the action is going to be. I yeah, if you, if, uses, entertainment uses for, for uh, like, it'd be fun to watch a movie in virtual reality. It'd be super immersive, but mm-hmm. I don't see it going beyond entertainment and gaming personally. Yeah. I mean, to me, like, you know, it's such a rude gesture to like, look at your watch traditionally. Yep. Right. And I find myself when I'm in a meeting and if I look at my watch, I feel I, because I got an alert, uh, some sort of like a notification, right. It's just a rude gesture or bringing out your phone or those kind of things. If I've got a, a pair of nice looking glasses on and it just pops up in front of me and I don't have to do that, that's going to be a, a very cool thing, right? If I, if I got another meeting and it just shows up in my in my glasses, that's great. If I'm in a big city and I want to go to this restaurant and it draws a line on the on the street for me, that's a good thing. But, you know, immersive, I think anything on my phone does now that I don't have to take my phone out or anything on my watch does now, and I don't have to look at my watch if it's just in front of me when I want it and I can turn it off when I don't, that's going to be helpful. But, you know, the other stuff is more, it's like a gaming thing to me. Uh, but I, I do think augmented is, has definitely got a place for sure. Yeah. I, I see now it's, it should be obvious to our listeners which of the three people uh, spent years and years doing online games. <laughs> 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 Online multi MMOs, World of Warcraft. Well, you, heard, baby. You, you heard what Errol and I were working on. It was not. I gaming, know you sure. productive, useful things. Uh, you know, <laughs> I was uh, I was leveling my elven mage. So, 
you know, there's that. <laughs> anyway, uh, hey, Errol, I know, I, I know your time is very precious. It's really wonderful to actually have this conversation with you. Normally, I ask people, like, how do people find you? I, I'm not asking you that because, you know, <laughs> everyone knows where to find you and you don't really want to be found anyway. Any parting <laughs> words of wisdom for, you know, the typical listener, you know, to, to this podcast? Yeah, I, I said this actually at a webinar yesterday, but I'll say it again. I think we are very fortunate that we are in the real estate industry. Mm-hmm. It is a real estate shelter is a basic human need. There is clearly demand during COVID. There will be demand post-COVID for people to move. I think what we are doing is very honorable, right? Helping people. And so I think it's a great industry to be in. I think the industry will continue to be strong. We've managed to survive, you know, a lot of a lot of ups and downs. But hopefully we come out of this, you know, stronger and smarter. That would yeah. be my hope. But it's always fun talking to you guys. Thank you for finally convincing me to come on the show. I appreciate it. <laughs> we, we hope now that, now that we've uh, done it once, you know, we hope that uh, you'll consider doing it more often. Well, you know? see what kind of ratings you get. But if, if you get, you know, if you get a few thumbs up, yeah, I'll come back. Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. All right, Greg, any parting words of wisdom? I don't know. I think Errol, well said, man. Well said. Well said. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, thank you, Errol. Uh, thank you, Greg. Thank you to all of our listeners, because obviously without you guys, we wouldn't bother doing any of this. And hopefully uh, we will see you all in, in the next uh, next edition. Bye, yeah, everybody. thanks, guys. And uh, make sure you go up on there and give us a good uh, rating and write a nice review. All those things help out um, to make the podcast a little bit more accessible to everybody. Thank you. That's exactly right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.